The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame, but... I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bowls encompass me, strong bowls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. And he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for your word, this wonderful revelation that you have given us of yourself, focusing as it does on the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning you will enable us to understand more clearly your calling to us, to become mature and seasoned Christians. Grant your blessing upon us this morning. We humbly pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Beloved, it is the word of God. It is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. And I pray this morning that this word will be as precious to us as uh, it must have been to our Savior. Uh, Martin Luther, that often ostentatious Augustinian monk who lived from 1483 to 1546, uh, said of the Bible that all parts of the Bible speak to us, but the book of Psalms speak of us. He loved the book of Psalms. I'll never forget when I was doing a, a lecture tour of Luther's Germany years ago, and I saw his lecture Bible. And I assumed when I saw Luther's lecture Bible that it would be open to the book of Romans or Galatians where he dug up the the gold of justification by faith alone. To my surprise, there it was under the glass and it was opened up to the book of the Bible that had dug him up out of the pit of despair, the book of Psalms. Every millimeter of the margins of the pages were filled with notes and prayers and cries and, and amens, the notes in his margins, which as you know are called marginalia. Just as a little tip, you get that for free this morning. If you make notes in the margins of your books, uh, they're not called, you know, marginal notes, they're called marginalia. You'll just sound much more sophisticated if you say, almost French, (laughs) you know, if you say marginalia. But the marginalia in this, in this Bible were just full of, of, of cries and prayers and he was just pouring his heart out on the pages of the book of Psalms. Luther said uh, so beautifully, we learn, when we come to the Psalms, we learn how do we are conduct ourselves with respect to God, to our friends and to our foes, and how we are to act in all cases of danger and uncertainty. But the Psalms are especially dear and valuable from their detailing to us so clearly and prophetically the death and resurrection of Christ and so declaring his kingdom and the state and spirit of Christianity that they may be fairly called a little Bible in which everything that is in the whole Bible is contained in a beautiful and compendious manner. And they may be considered, therefore, a preparatory wademicum or a handbook to it. It would seem to me as if the Holy Ghost had inspired the composer with the idea of a small Bible or of an epitome of Christianity and godly men so that those who have not the means of reading the whole Bible may find the summary and sense condensed in a small volume in the Psalms. But above all, there is a virtue and a soul which breathes throughout the Psalms. Whilst in other religious books they are full, not of the words but of the works of the saints, the Psalms are an exception. They breathe the very odor of sanctity, you will find yourself in them. And also that great principle, know thyself engraved in them, as well as God himself and the creatures whom he has made. The book of Psalms is bedrock to our existence as a church. We would not be here at Christ Presbyterian Church had the Protestant Reformation not happened. The Protestant Reformation would not have happened had men and women not fallen in love with the book of Psalms. John Calvin, 1509 to 64, said that in the book of Psalms, you find the entire anatomy of the whole human soul in the book 
of Psalms. Indeed, we come to the Psalms, this majestic poetic mountainscape arising out of the middle of the Bible like the Grand Tetons on the horizon when you fly into Jackson Hole, and they, they speak to us in our fields. It's where the Psalms get to our fields. They dissect our souls. They, they diagnose the source of the pain. And then the great physician, Jesus Christ, who happens to be both the author and the subject of the book of Psalms, comes along and he begins his healing work through this collection of sung prayers as his divine pharmacist, the Holy Spirit, applies the medicines of first one psalm and, and then another. And the reason the psalms can heal us and bring us home is because Psalm 22 tells us of one who was bruised and bloodied, um, crucified, murdered on a Roman cross on a Jewish trash heap far, far from home. It is um, this collection of messianic psalms that we're thinking about here now, those psalms that, that prophesy specifically the person and work of, of Christ. You think of Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, 118, and, and our psalm today, Psalm 22. And in a very real sense, the whole of the Psalter is messianic. The whole of the Psalter, either explicitly or implicitly, either whispers or shouts the, the name of Jesus, right? As, as we see in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus encounters the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we read there that he opens the law and the prophets. And then he's with the rest of the disciples, and he opens the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. And he's basically saying, as he opens up the Old Testament, every jot and tittle of the Old Testament is about me. And Psalm 22 is just so brimming over that a month of Sundays of sermons on Psalm 22 would, would just begin to sink this pulpit into the healing waters of, of the psalm. So you'll, I pray, forgive me this morning for so brief uh, a visit with the greater David, Jesus Christ, abandoned in atonement, yet now our risen elder brother. You know, King David certainly knew a version of the realities of which he would write here in Psalm 22. He knew about abandonment. He knew about rejection. He knew about threats on his life and persecution by his enemies. That said, what we have here in Psalm 22 is less uh, a description of some painful experience that David had endured, and it is actually nothing less than a description of brutal execution. There are so many details, pointed and precise, that parallel the gospel records of the death and crucifixion of Christ that is simply undeniable. The, the issue is, though, crucifixion wasn't actually practiced in the time of David. So what are we to make of this? How can David speak so pointedly in such a detailed manner of crucifixion, of execution by crucifixion, and yet it's just not something that was practiced in his time? What are we to make of this? Well, understand this. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 9 through 16, David was a king. We know that, David, King David. But if you turn back one chapter, chapter 6, verses 12 to 20, we read that David was also a priest. So he was a king, and he was a priest, and he was also a prophet. Some 73 of the 150 Psalms we know were written by him. He was inspired of the Holy Ghost to write the Word of God. So he was a prophet, he was a priest, and he was, uh, he was a king. But here he's foretelling in stark detail the reality of the, of the crucifixion. Again, something that wasn't practiced in, in his time. He was telling prophetically of the crucifixion of the true and greater prophet, priest, and king, his Lord and your Lord and, and mine. The, the, the Prince of Old Testament scholars, Derek Kidner, lived from 1913 to 2008, said it this way, uh, no incident recorded of David can begin to account for Psalm 22. 
As Abe Benson points out, it is not a description of an illness, but of an execution. And while David was once threatened with stoning, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, this is a very different scene. Whatever the initial stimulus, the language of the psalm defies a naturalistic explanation. The best account is in the terms used by Peter concerning another psalm of David, i.e. Psalm 16, where Peter says of David, being therefore a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. David was prophesying of the crucifixion and the execution of Jesus Christ, whereupon he would cry out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34, the same thing that begins our Psalm 22. Theologians call it the cry of dereliction, the cry of abandonment. As he hung upon the cross, abandoned by God at that moment, I wondered, did his mind go back? Did Jesus' mind go back to when he was growing up in the synagogue as a little boy where he would sing the Psalms? As he hung there upon the cross, did his mind go back as a little boy singing Psalm 22 in synagogue worship and he was singing prophetically of himself? Think about that. Jesus would have sung Psalm 22 as a little boy and he was singing Ultimately, about himself, as I said earlier, we've got to be brief. The clock, the clock is my vile enemy this morning. It's not going to allow detailed exegesis of every, every de- detail and, and doctrinal implication of this psalm. But I, I do want to be really clear and specific on, on something theologically. It's really, really an important thing at this point. Perhaps you have heard um, preachers or teachers with the best of intentions trying to make sense of the abandonment of Christ on the cross and then they're trying to make sense of this mystery. How can it be? And, and they will say something along the lines of, at this moment, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, the Trinity was torn asunder. As if the Trinity at that moment became a binarity. Now, I want to I wanna take us into the deep end of the pool for just about a minute. Can you hold your breath that long? Can you hold your breath for about a minute? You coffee drinkers here, you might want to take a sip. You might need it. Um, along with my privilege of being a pastor, I also have the privilege of being a, a professor of theology. I teach Christian apologetics for Westminster Theological Seminary and apologetics and theology there and for Reformed and Birmingham Theological Seminaries. And I get to teach apologetics to the students over at the academy over here. Um, and I, and I, I teach uh, my apologetics students that the only worldview, the only worldview that can account for the preconditions of intelligibility is the Christian Trinitarian worldview. Um, the, the only worldview that can account for the preconditions of intelligibility and reality as we experience it is the Christian worldview. No other worldview can account for it, can assert things but cannot account. Now, when we think about how we know what we know, we have to ask the question, do we have an authority for what we know? Or are we just kind of slinging spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks? Or is it, you know, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. Truth is relative, we both agree. Of course, the problem is that if the truth, that truth is relative is true, then it's not actually true. It's just relative, right? Truth's an inescapable thing because all of reality is logos-centric. Because chance doesn't exist, luck doesn't exist, Jesus exists, and he is the logos. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we have to ask the question, how do we know what we know? What is our starting point for having confidence and knowledge? And so we speak in uh, Christian apologetics, it's a Latin word, it's principia, 
Principia is the plural of the word principium. And principia speaks of our starting points, our launching pads. So think of principia as our starting points, or our launching pads for how we know what we know. And in Christian apologetics, we have actually two principia. There is the principium ascendi, or the starting point of being, i.e., the triune God of the Bible. And there's the principium cognoscendi externum, or the starting point for knowing external to me, the Bible of the triune God. In other words, I'm not the measure of truth, right? I'm not my own starting point for epistemological truth and, and knowledge, And so the starting point for being is the triune God of the Bible. The starting point for knowledge is his revelation in the Bible of the triune God. Apart from that principia, we cannot account for the preconditions of intelligibility. We cannot account for, say, inductive reasoning upon which science depends, or deductive reasoning upon which math depends, or the normativity and regularity of nature upon which science depends. We cannot account for objectivity and predication upon which word meaning depends. We cannot account for morality or personhood or universals or beauty. The list goes on and on and on. In other words, an atheistic naturalistic worldview cannot account for those things. Uh, An atheistic, naturalistic worldview says all that exists is matter and energy. Guess what is not matter and energy? The laws of logic. They cannot account for the laws of logic. And and if they would argue, well, the laws of logic are just axiomatic, they just are what they are, that is just a grand statement of pure subjectivism. So when the, you know, materialist atheist wants to try to mount a logical argument against the Christian uh, worldview, that effort to use logic betrays the fact that their worldview can't account for logic. They have to borrow it from the only worldview that can, i.e. Christianity. Again, matter and energy is all that exists. Logic is neither matter nor energy. And so what ultimately happens is every time the atheist seeks to mount a logical argument against Christianity, he proves Christianity every time. Now, what's the point? If the Trinity at any point ceased to be the Trinity then not only would all reality at that moment collapse, but so would the past and the present collapse into nothingness. But of course, nothing is, is actually not itself existent entity. It, it, nothingness is simply a description of, of that which is juxtaposed to the reality of somethingness. Hence the idea that the Trinity ceased to be the Trinity not only denies the immutability of God, but the very foundation of reality and existence to begin with, or stated simply, it's just not possible. It's just not possible that the Trinity could cease at any point to be the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what does it mean then? What does it mean that the Father forsook the Son? I want you to look in your Bibles at Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, and we have here, we have here in our, in our Bibles, in the Gospel of Isaiah, something that will help us figure this out. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not surely 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you catch... Verse 10 there, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. There's some insight there as to what it means that Christ was abandoned by the Father as he underwent the wrath of the Father. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. I remember years ago, uh, I was sharing the gospel with someone. This person had been um, their whole life an atheist, a professing atheist, very committed to it, hated Christianity. But uh, they had just gone through the death of a loved one, and uh, this person wanted to talk to me about Christianity, asked some questions. So we walked around Yellowstone National Park, is where I was at the time, and we walked around Yellowstone National Park for three hours and just answering questions and talking about the gospel. I shared the gospel as warmly and winsomely and as creatively as I could imagine every way I could for three solid hours. This person was well into her 70s, and we got to the end of it, and she said, you know, all that may be true, but I will have nothing to do with a father who would let his son die. The father did not let his son die. The father was not a passive participant. He ordained it. It pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. We all know the pain of abandonment, right? Maybe you've been through a breakup or two. Maybe you, you know, maybe you, you struggled in your marriage and, and your marriage has come to an end. You just feel lonely, you feel abandoned. Uh, maybe, you know, you get laid off, you get fired at work, and you just feel like, man, I'm rejected, they don't want me, and you just feel abandoned. Um, maybe, maybe you get on Instagram, right? You get on the gram, and you see all your friends, and they're, they're doing something, they're having fun, and they're all like, hey, you know, making duck lips, and there you are sitting at home, and you're not there. You've been left out. You know, you've been abandoned. Um, maybe you felt rejected for your witness for Christ, Right? Many of us have felt the rejection of woke cancel culture, which has no place in the church. It has the stench of Karl Marx, not the irresistible life-giving aroma of Messiah. You can't get atonement from atheism. 
You don't need an endless Marxian Hegelian cycle of power, uh, political power exchange. We need propitiation, atonement. Only then will we begin to know healing and reconciliation between man and man because reconciliation between man and man must flow from reconciliation between God and man. This is a gospel. This is a gospel need. But David knew the rejection of his enemies, the danger right, of those who sought his life. He knew the reality of, of abandonment. Jesus knew this in Psalm 22. In fact, verses 2 through 21 of Psalm 22 is this very detailed um, account of, of fear and, and emotional duress beyond our darkest nightmares. In, in the bruising of his son, the, the father ordained the rejection of the Jews, ordained the rejection of the crowds, the, 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 the Roman powerful. He, he ordained the, the, the rejection even of a criminal to one side of Jesus, even the rejection of his disciples. And that had to hurt. It's that last one that had to hurt, right? If you go back to Luke 22, verses 33 and 34, Jesus says he's going to go to Jerusalem. Peter starts running in his mouth. We will go to Jerusalem with you. We will even die with you. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Peter, you'll die for me? Peter, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And then you turn a few verses, Luke 22, 54 to 62. Uh, we see Peter uh, warming himself by fire as the cold reality of abandonment by the Father begins in the high priest's chambers as he is interrogated and slapped and punched, his beard being plucked out. Peter's down there. He's got his hoodie up. He just, nobody going to know anything. I don't know anything. Nobody knows me. He's just warming himself by the fire. Someone comes along. You were one of his followers, weren't you? I don't know the guy. I have no idea what you're talking about. A peasant girl comes up. Yeah, I saw you with him. You were one of his followers. I have no idea what you're talking about. Someone comes along and says, yeah, you were one of his followers. Peter calls down a curse from heaven upon himself. If I am lying, may I be cursed. I do not know the man. And the cock-a-doodle-doo, cock-a-doodle-did. And in verse 61 of Luke 22, Luke tells us that Jesus sees Peter at that very moment. And I would suggest to you that at that very moment, not only does Jesus see Peter, Peter sees Peter, maybe for the first time. For who he is, his fear, his sin, his self-reliance, his self-preservation. Any of us, I wonder if any of us here this morning need to see ourselves afresh. Our sin, a hardness of heart, our brokenness, our, our commitment to self-preservation, the ways that we forsake Christ. But the good news about the good news is found in a little story about charcoal. Charcoal. Yes. Now, some of you, like master grill, you know, purists here, are thinking, okay, David, I can hang with this. You lost me at Principium Cognoscendi Externum, but you had me at charcoal. In John's Gospel, 1818, the very officers who had arrested Jesus, now that he's been arrested, they build themselves a little charcoal fire in John 18, 18. It was that charcoal fire by which Peter was warming himself. I don't know him, I don't know him, I don't know him. After that cold abandonment of Jesus three times, and Jesus sees Peter back in Luke 22, Jesus did not coldly stare at Peter. 
He did not stare at Peter with cold, steely eyes. His eyes were warm as he saw Peter at that moment in all of his brokenness through the gory glory and joy that was ahead of him in the cross. In fact, I want you to look at, look, look at if you will, at John. Let's turn to John 21. John 21. So back in 18, verse 18, a little charcoal fire. That's what Peter's warming himself by. Then Jesus is crucified. Then Jesus rises from the grave. And now we begin in 21, verse 4. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So he's going to make fish tacos for them. That's in the Greek. He said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. So John the apostle said, John the disciple said to Peter, hey Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, now stop there just for a second. If you had just denied Jesus three times after you'd run your mouth, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I will die with you. And you denied Jesus three times. If you heard that it was the Lord, I don't know about you, man. I would paddle that boat as fast as I could to the other side of Galilee. And I would get on line and I'd get on Southwest. Got to get away, man. I would fly somewhere. What is it about Jesus, y'all? That in the midst of our cowardice and our brokenness and our sin and our failure and our inconsistency and, and all the ways that we just screw things up, what is it about Jesus that even then, no, especially then, he's irresistible? Look at what Peter does. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, 150 of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And, of course, you know the next several verses are the restoration of Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I do. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Feed my sheep. It's a very real sense in which what's going on here is a display of, of the tender mercy and grace of Jesus. Verse 7, Peter throws himself into the sea. The other disciples stay in the boat. Peter just launches himself over into the water. He throws himself into the sea, and in so doing, he's throwing himself into the grace and mercy of Jesus. Any of you need to do that this morning? Verse 9, a charcoal fire. Another charcoal fire. Peter, you failed at a charcoal fire. I'm going to restore you at a charcoal fire. Verses 15 to 19, the restoration of Peter. One of the main contours of John's gospel is the reclaiming and recommissioning of Peter. And I pray 
I pray that even now the Lord will begin to light some charcoal fires in hearts, in my heart, in, in your heart, and begin a work of, of fresh reclaiming and recommissioning us to a life of, of joyful obedience to him. Because Jesus does not see you when you deny him, when you abandon him. He does not stare at you coldly. He sees you through the eyes of joy. How could it be Jesus is about to go to the cross? Peter, could you not have stood with me? I'm about to be crucified brutally. And yet, how did he see Peter? With compassion. And he knew he would build, he would build the real charcoal fire and light a fire in Peter's heart. Read Acts chapter 2. Peter's not scared of anything anymore. Peter's not scared of anything after the resurrection of Christ. He lit a fire, a charcoal fire in his heart. All of this is because of what we read in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the sin that entangles and the things that encumber and run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. The joy, what possibly could have been joyful? But that's what it says. I mean, look, turn, turn in the scriptures. You'll see it for yourself. I'm not making this up. There it is, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, you see it right there? The joy. What possibly could have been joyful? What joy could have been set before him as he was about to go to the cross? Well, that page that you're looking at could become a mirror. You would see the joy that was set before Jesus. You were the joy. Y'all? You were the joy set before Jesus. You were the joy set before him as he went to the cross. Now, to be sure, humility calls upon us to leave the mystery of divine immutability and infinity exactly how this was communicated, this abandonment, how it was communicated within the Godhead. We, we humble ourselves before that mystery. That said, the abandonment of the Son by the Father is not a cessation of the reality of the eternal trinity, but rather the Father ordaining the pouring out of his wrath in all of its variegated just and righteous fullness of indignation with my sin. Why did the Father abandon Jesus? It's my fault, y'all. I'm to blame. Jesus felt the unmitigated wrath of God against the sin of David Filson. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer to the why is David Filson and Moose, Campbell and Rebecca, Jennifer. The answer to that question is you and me. We are why this had to happen. Because God is holy, as we read in Habakkuk 1.13, and he cannot look upon sin as if to condone it. And that's why we read what we read in Romans 3.21 and following, where we read that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what are we going to do? Well, in verses 25 and 26, we see the solution. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's the most beautiful word in the whole Bible, propitiation. It's from the Greek word helisterion. It means a sacrifice of atonement, a placating of wrath. 
God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What does this mean? Well, let me tell you what Psalm 22 is about. Psalm 22 is about the same thing that Romans 3, 21 to 26 is about, and it is this, Christ died for God, and God was satisfied with Christ. Christ died to justify God in justifying you and me. It would not have been just of God. He would have had to have denied himself, deny his righteousness, deny his holiness, just to wink at our sin. Christ died to give God the Father just right to justify you and me. That's why we sing with John Newton, 1725-1807, the greatest hymn that's ever been written, Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder. It's the greatest hymn the church owns. If you don't agree with that, you need to pray about it, okay? It's the greatest. Verse 4. Verse 4 goes like this. Let us, let us wonder grace and justice join and point to mercy store when through grace in christ our trust is justice smiles and asks no more the justice of god abandoned christ and smiles at you god smiles at you not only in his grace and in his mercy he smiles at you in his justice because his righteousness has been satisfied in christ This abandonment was an abandonment of propitiation. Again, a beautiful word. Only appears four times in the Greek New Testament. Romans 3.25, Romans 9.5, 1 John 2.2, and 1 John 4.10. But it was an abandonment to the Father's wrath as he presented his Son as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement. Not only through the agony of soul and the relational pain of Christ's soul, but through the savagery, the physical savagery of his flogging and crucifixion. Have you ever thought about the fact that a large part of Jesus' ministry took place within about 70 or 80 miles uh, of geographical spread from Galilee to Judea and all the villages and towns in between? All of the healing and miracles within a relatively small geographical spread. So think back to the story of, say, John 12. 1 to 8, and Mary comes in and she lets down her hair. Scandalous. It's something that a woman only does in intimate moments with her husband. But of course, this was an intimate moment with her heavenly husband and yours and my heavenly husband is that people are deriding her. Jesus dignifies her, lets down her hair, wipes his feet. That happened within striking distance of where the prophecy of Isaiah 50 verse 6 would be fulfilled, where it prophesied the hairs of Jesus' beard being plucked out in cruel mockery. Within striking distance of where Jesus healed the paralytic in Mark 2 verses 1 to 12, Jesus hung, paralyzed as it were, immobilized, splayed on a cross, again, far, far from home, all so that you and I could be healed of our sin paralysis and walk. No, no, not walk, run. We'll get there in a minute so that we could run at the very holy of holies and find our home there within striking distance of where he healed a woman with the flow of blood. In Mark 5, verses 21 to 34, his blood would flow down from his thorn-crowned brow, which blood, as Puritan Thomas Watson says, 
flows as warm for you now as when it first issued forth from his wounds. Within striking distance of where he healed blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, 46 to 52, he would struggle on the cross to see through eyes that were swollen and bloodied from the, the punching and the beating. Within striking distance of where he healed a leper in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, he would have the very skin of his back peeled off, filleted off with the Roman flagrum. Within striking distance of where Jesus would gently touch Malchus' ear after Peter cut it off. Peter wasn't going for the ear. He missed. But he gently touched Malchus' ear in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, and healed the high priest's servant. Jesus, within striking distance, would be blindfolded. He'd be punched and slapped. You're a prophet? Prophesy who just punched you. Within striking distance of where Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2, his own thirst would be mocked and exacerbated with vinegar on a sponge. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. Abandoned in atonement. But he is our risen elder brother, y'all. He was abandoned in his atonement, but was, but was accepted by resurrection. Romans 4.25 says that the resurrection of Jesus, the physical, literal, historic resurrection of Jesus with the Father's receipt paid in full. The atonement of Christ is complete and satisfactory. Payment in full. And then we read, do we not, prophesied in Psalm 22. We see it in the gospel accounts. His seamless robe, his seamless garment became the prize of sport, the prize of gambling. In John chapter 19, verses 23 to 24, you ever wonder what happened with that seamless robe? Which one of them got it? Which one of them won the gambling? And, and they, they wound up with that seamless robe. Where is, where is it now? Did one of them go like, you know, sell it on eBay or something? Where, where is it now? It's all over the sanctuary. Every one of you are wearing it. Isaiah 61.10, you're robed with the very righteous robe of Christ. You know, Lydia, my daughter, has always adored, worshipped her older brother. Uh, his whole life, her whole life, she just adores her older brother. They have a sweet relationship. When Luke left for college, he's a rising senior in college now, and he left for college a few years ago, she made a beeline for his room and raided his room. And all of the clothes that he left behind were suddenly hers. She's like a ferret. She just pilferaged everything. And she loves when she wears Luke's clothes, a hoodie, something like that, a jacket. This is my big brother's, right? And she loves wearing it. It just drapes off of her because, but, but she loves it because those clothes are Luke's, her, her older brother's. What we read in Psalm 22, in fact, Psalm 22, verse 22, and you look at the way that that's fulfilled in Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18, we have an elder brother, Jesus Christ, who is not ashamed that we are his little sisters and brothers. That's what the text says. And this robe of righteousness is a gift from your elder brother who sings the Father's praise over you. All that Psalm 22 fulfilled at the end of the Gospels, fulfilled in Hebrews 2, where the author of Hebrews tells us that not only is Jesus not ashamed to be our big brother, he will never cancel you. 
He came to destroy him who owes the power of death, that is the devil, Hebrews 2 says, and deliver all of us who through our fear of death are held in lifelong bondage. He's able to help those of us who are being tempted. He was abandoned so you never will be. As Charles Spurgeon, that great London Baptist prince of preachers who lived from 1834 to 92, once said, the first Adam made us naked. The second Adam became naked so he could clothe our nakedness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we would become the righteousness of God. Colossians 2 verse 14, Christ has canceled the record of debt, uh, the, the sin debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. As my son says, that's the kind of cancel culture we need, a celebration of the gospel, of the cancellation of sin debt by the gospel. You read there in Psalm 22 where it speaks of the people of God who will declare his praise and how we will pass it on from one generation to the other. Y'all are the people of Psalm 22, verses 30 to 31. His righteousness is proclaimed over you and of you. The Lord has done it, and we will teach our children. You know, that text ended, I love that. The Lord has done it. And we'll teach our children that the Lord has done it. We'll teach our children's children that the Lord has done it. I love going in where my Sunday school class is, and before I teach in there, in the services, we had the little bitties and they had the little kids in there, right? And I walked in this morning, it was all set up for the kids, and there was an open Bible on the podium. I'm like, yes, yes, we're going to lay these children down in the spices of the Bible, and they're going to come up smelling like it. The Lord has done it. And we teach our children that, and we'll be living echoes of the words of Jesus in John 19, 30. Yes, I've done it. It is finished. Everything necessary for your salvation and mine, the Lord has done it. It is finished. And because the Lord has finished this work of atonement, the very next psalm makes sense, doesn't it? From Psalm 22 to the 23rd Psalm. The Lord, that abandoned one, he's my shepherd. And because he was abandoned, I will not lack a single thing. He spreads a table for me in the midst of our enemies. Would you look? A table spread for us, in the midst of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You see, as, as Christians, as the church, we have a target on our backs. The world would seek to infiltrate us. Our flesh would incapacitate us. The devil would indict us. What an absurd joke Satan is. The gates of hell tremble. The gates of hell are going to tremble. Listen, when we're coming to the table this morning, just, just pay attention. You're going to feel the gates of hell tremble as you come to the table and you declare the truth of the gospel to your own hearts and hearts of all those at table with you. The devil is an absurd joke. He indicts, he accuses, he tries to condemn us, and all the while, neon signs are over every head in this room. Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever you have done, however you have screwed up, whatever you are ashamed of and work yourself into a lather, hoping no one will ever find out about, if you are in Christ, the verdict for you, no condemnation. This table says that you are not forsaken and you never will be. This table says a loud amen to the preached word, and then it reiterates the gospel of propitiation by the body and blood of Jesus given for us, and and it revives us each week by that same body and blood and far from ever forsaking us. Psalm 23, verse 6, we read, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. I've told you all before, however, however you... However, you may remember this. I've told you before, that's, that's really weak language. Surely, goodness and chesed, grace. The next Hebrew word there is yeradfuni, from the Hebrew root radaf. Every time David used it, he used it of being hounded, pursued by his enemies. Surely, grace is on the chase all the days of my life.
This table says, far from being abandoned, His grace is on the chase in your life. And um, when I say, as I'm going to here in just a minute, run, don't walk, that's your cue to enjoy the chase. When I say run, don't walk, that's your cue, not just to come to the table, but to look over your shoulder. Because the abandoned one, the abandoned one is abandoned no longer. He's at the Father's right hand. And his grace is on the chase in your life. And he pursues you. He is your elder brother. And your elder brother says, hey, y'all, my sisters and brothers, it's time for, ch- it's time for supper. I'm going to invite the uh, table hosts and the servers to make their way down as we prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for those who have been baptized into Christ or in fellowship with the local Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. Uh, who know they need the Lord Jesus, who cling to the Lord Jesus, and, and moreover know the Lord Jesus clings to them. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate that, to, to feed upon Christ by faith. This table is for you. If you were here, and maybe you would say, I don't know that I would call myself a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm just kind of, you know, poking and prodding and, and checking things out about Christianity. It's a great place to do that, and we really thrilled that you would maybe come here and, and let us be part of that journey with you. If you're here and you would say, I don't know that I'd call myself a believer in Christ, rather than taking the bread and the wine, which is a profession of faith, take this opportunity. Maybe read the prayers that are in the Bibles and the P-Racks in front of you, or take the opportunity to reach out to someone around you and say, what does it mean to you uh, to, to be a follower of Christ? Talk to me about that. You might even want to come and just observe and see what Christians do as we take the bread and the wine, and it's a simple act of faith, whereby we are being intimate with Jesus. You know, one of the most intimate things you ever do is eating. You take something that's outside of you, and you put it inside of you. This is an act of intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I'm going to encourage us uh, to think about the words I'm about to say. They're called the words of institution. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to walk you through what Jesus actually said about this meal. Gracious Father, we come now and ask that uh, by your Holy Spirit you would take these ordinary elements of bread that remains bread and wine that remains wine and do something extraordinary in us. Don't let us remain the same. Grow us, strengthen us, and help us to believe the gospel just a little bit more. We ask it in the precious name of Jesus, our abandoned suffering servant. Amen.